Let Them Lead is a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. Your host is John Bacon, author of the book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, which led to this podcast. On Let Them Lead, John talks to remarkable leaders from every field imaginable. Automotive, computers, food service, media, education, and athletics, just to name a few. And they share their hard-won wisdom, amazing stories, and a few laughs. You'll also learn a few things you can use tomorrow, and things you can think about the rest of your life. John always finishes with three takeaways and a discussion of their favorite teacher. In the words of John's fifth grade teacher, Mr. Puddock, it's fast, it's fun, and we get it done. So please join us for an entertaining and inspiring discussion. You'll be glad you did. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes. And by all means, spread the word. That's how the word gets spread. And now here's our latest episode of Let Them Lead, presented by your host, John U. Bacon. Hello and welcome back for another edition of Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon, the host of the podcast and, of course, the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And as you know, I'm not making that up. My guest today is Steve Papadopoulos, the Emeritus Chief Medical Officer of the Barrow Neurologic Institute in Phoenix. It's quite large. We'll get to how he got there and a few of his patents along the way as well. Interesting background, to say the least. You grew up all over, correct? I did. I, uh, my dad worked in the oil industry, and we moved every one or two years when I was growing up. Was that hard? It was hard at the time, but it was an invaluable lesson in appreciating family. The hmm. family was remarkably close, sort of the only people we had. And how many siblings do you have? Three brothers. Younger? One older, two younger. There you go. So you're all still tight to this day. We are. And you learn how to spell Papadopoulos at what age? Probably about three. So that means you have to learn the alphabet to learn that. That was a requirement. So you know what? If you want a good reader, have a hard name. So our name is easy and our kid has no problem. That's the problem. So there we go. So you grew up all over the place, of course. Oil has got nothing to do with medicine. At what point did you decide you wanted to pursue medicine as a career? It was a long path. I really uh, had great affection for a pediatrician when I was growing up. And I mm. thought, well, that's what I wanted to do. I soon, soon figured out that I didn't want to take care of kids. Actually, I had trouble taking care of the kids' mothers. Uh, <laughs> Why do you quit coaching high school hockey? It's never the kids. It's the parents. That's and exactly right. I had great parents at Huron, but whenever right. I talked to coaches who quit, yeah. it's never the kids, it's the parents. So the kids were fine. The parents were the problem. How so? Just a million questions. and Children's parents are scared, concerned, and can be a little bit overbearing. That all sounds about right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like all a, of us. My dad's a pediatrician, so uh, I come by this honestly myself. And I answered the phone for many panicked parents along the way. So, so not pediatrics, then neurology, of course. And neurology. I, I got interested in that when I got to medical school. Uh, at the University of Michigan. At actually medical school in Texas, residency oh. in Michigan. Sorry about that. Thank yep. you. And I had a neuropathologist, was a mentor of mine, wonderful fellow, really got me interested in the science of neurology. I've always had a physical bent, and that led me to neurosurgery, which I finally pursued. That is truly brain surgery. That is truly brain <laughs> surgery. How terrifying is it your first time going in? I think everybody thinks neurosurgery is some uh, mystical thing. It's, it's 
really pretty straightforward. And the training program is long. It's um, about eight years out of medical school when you're finally fully trained and an official neurosurgeon. So uh, the, the process to get there is a stepwise process. Makes sense. How does one practice? I mean, I always wonder about pole vaulting, for example. Running, you just try to get faster. I get it. Pole vaulting, either get over the damn bar or you don't. I don't know how you get halfway to a pole vault, for example. How do you get halfway to a brain surgery? Uh, you don't. That's why the training is so long. You have a, a lot of mentorship and support and uh, see one, do one, teach one. A little bit more than that. It's sure. see 100, do 100, <laughs> teach 100. That sounds more like it. I feel a little better. Thank you. I've always maintained, by the way, that there are three people I wanted to think that are, I want them to be the most arrogant in the world. My starting goalie, my pilot, and my brain surgeon. You people cannot be beat, trust me. So if there's any place you want to have confidence, it's got to be brain surgery. Do you recall your first surgery? I do. It was pretty simple. It was one of those, it was in the watching phase. It was the watching phase before I uh, got to the do phase. I remember my first surgery on my own as faculty at University of Michigan. And that was quietly terrifying. Yes, it was. How so? Uh, I realized. I, I can imagine how it would. I was fully confident that I could get it done, but it was that moment you realized that you, you truly are on your own. And this is life or death. It wasn't that critical, but it was, for me, it hey, was hey, life or death. The skull is off. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> the anesthesiology alone is life or death. Yeah. So. Uh, what was the operation? It was an operation on an aneurysm, which is a blister on the blood vessel that was leaking and had to be repaired. And you went in there and got it. It went perfectly. And how long did it take? Uh, about three hours. <laughs> that was a simple one, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I'm a history major. Thank you, Steve, for that one. <laughs> how many surgeries have you done in your career? A little over 10,000. Wow. So a little calmer now? Oh, you have to be calm from the beginning. You, you get more confidence after 10,000. I see. What changes? Think experience. You've seen it before. You know what to anticipate. You know the challenges in front of you. And that just makes you more comfortable and you do better. Well, you and I are both Michigan football fans, of course. The quarterbacks will say you're two and three. The game slows down. <laughs> and you anticipate things. You know all the moving parts out there. The defensive tackle is going to come in. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. You've watched the variables. So in that sense, the game kind of slows down and there aren't too many surprises. Luckily, not too many surprises. <laughs> that's, that's right. right. <laughs> if things go well. Yeah. Nonetheless, I mean, no doubt when you walk out, you're often the hero. But it can't always go the way you want it, of course. And some challenges are just too great when you know the odds aren't very good to begin with. That has to require a certain mental and psychological fortitude that few might possess. You know, when you go into a case where the odds are difficult, that's actually easier because you know what you're up against. My most salient memories is a case that should have been routine and the odds should have been very good mm. and something unanticipated went wrong. And those are crushing. It takes a while to get past that when that happens. Luckily, it doesn't happen often. Mm -hmm. If you're good, of but course. But it also doesn't never happen. It does happen. How do you prepare? And you've also trained students, of course, future many. How many surgeons have you trained? Yeah, I don't know. It's not been hundreds, but it's probably been around 100. Yeah. And what do you tell them about that? Because if you're going to be... It's a line in the book that I've given you today, let them lead. 
Um, leaders get criticized. And my line about that is if you don't like water, don't be a plumber. And if you don't yeah. like bees, don't become a beekeeper. And if you don't like, you can't handle what is truly a life and death situation. And I can't imagine being a neurosurgeon very long without seeing both sides of that. Um, how do you psychologically handle that? Do you have a process after you lose a patient to, to get through it? Neurosurgeons become neurosurgeons for a reason. They've got it deep within them, that fortitude. Mm. And when that happens, you have to find it and rely on it and move past it. Uh, and it happens to all of us. And we have to move past it or else we can't continue to do the good things. Great point. And it's not being callous. It's not being insensitive. But if you scream at the sight of blood, you will not be a very good surgeon, for example. You're going to lose a patient here and there. So you go through this process and you have to have that confidence, but also let's get to the good side here. The vast majority go very well. And that also has to sustain you. If you, if you had five straight losses, of course, that would get to anybody to say the least. Uh, but the ratios are much better than that. Yep. And the success rate is ballpark for neurosurgery. What is it? Oh, for me, it needs to be 99 plus percent. There's not room for much, much worse than that. <laughs> 99 plus percent. That keeps you going, of course. And when you do have these victories, and they're often, of course, you cannot forget the hugs from the families. That has to get to you also. Yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, you literally saved a life. You've, you removed tumors, aneurysms, blood clots. It's work. It's, it's what we do every day. It's what we're built to do every day. The gravity of it is, is not really there until you see a patient years later and that those have been the greatest huh. the greatest gifts is the changes that you help in someone's life and they come back four or five six ten years later they come back to see you and come back to see you that's remarkable that's very joyous that's got to be cool and you see what they've done since then of course it's yeah. not just a a patient who's recovered yeah it's how they spent those five ten years they've got kids all this stuff, of course, happens in the meantime. So that, by the way, Steve's getting a little choked up as we talk. So <laughs> yes, brain surgeons have to have heart as well. So that's got to be as good as it gets. A side project I'm working on is called the Appreciation Project to set up a website for students to thank their teachers years after the fact, because eighth grade teachers don't get thanked. High school teachers often get thanked. College teachers get thanked. Perhaps not enough, but the early ones. But for you, what a great gift. You never know what's happening when you're doing it. It's just a day's work. And, and, and you can't think of that. No. What, all that's attached can't to it. Can't anticipate it. Right. Can you give me an example? You must have a few that popped to mind. I took care of a young boy here in Michigan. He was in a skiing accident. Had a severe injury to his neck and his skull. His, his neck was actually separated from his skull. It's a very rare injury. Mm. It's uh, probably before helmets and all that. All, often lethal. Patients that have this injury usually don't even make it to the hospital. We're pioneering some new surgical tools at the time. We're able to operate on him. He did well. He was partially paralyzed. It took months and months of rehab. And I lost track of him after several months, a year or two. And he showed up in my office in Phoenix. I had moved to Phoenix, and it was about 15 years later, my secretary called me on the phone and said he was here to see me with his wife and children. Last I saw him, he was nine years old in a wheelchair. Wow. And then he walked in, pushing a stroller, and said, uh, Dr. Papadopoulos, I just want my wife and my children to meet the man that saved my life. 
Whew. And that, that doesn't happen very often, but you don't know, you can't anticipate that result 15 right. years later. And that does not make you feel good about what you do. But in most careers, if you have one of those, that's a good career. So that's, yep. that's pretty cool. Of course, the podcast is not about brain surgery because it'd be a, <laughs> it'd be a short one if it was, because my knowledge as a history English major only goes so far. But your career has gone beyond that as well, of course, in addition to thousands of surgeries, 10,000 or so at 99% success rate, which is awfully reassuring, of course. You have a number of patents on, I would call them very complicated, but probably very elegant surgical tools. And that started changing your career. And then you got into leadership as well. I did. Tell us about this transition. I uh, began designing tools for surgery. I always felt like there was a better way to do what I was doing. And and I didn't design them on my own. It takes a team of uh, designers, other surgeons, engineers, and we were able to design some very successful patents along the way. And and that introduced me to some business of medicine and, and how to take good ideas and bring them to the world, which was a, has been an interesting journey. Some of it very successful, some of it Terrible failures, but it's been a wonderful journey. I ended up moving from uh, University of Michigan to Barrow Neurologic Institute and, in, in, uh, Phoenix. in Phoenix and began. And that was in there. the 90s? That was at two, in 2001. Okay. Yeah, it's a memorable year for all of us. So yes, I, it is. I, <laughs> Easy to place, I'm sure. Yeah. And one thing led to another, and I became uh, the business lead uh, of that organization and then the chief medical officer in the C-suite of that type of an organization. My primary responsibility was the medical side, care delivery, and the physicians. Did that for several years and then finally decided it was time to retire, which I am enjoying immensely. It seems like you are in Brain surgery is not the kind of thing you can do halfway, by the way. You can't like have one foot in, one foot out. I'm a part-time brain surgeon. It really doesn't work, does it? It doesn't. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. But at, when I was 50, I was asked to do some, uh, really start running the business. And the business of medicine is very complicated. I wasn't trained in business. In fact, I didn't have many skills at all in business. Decided right. I needed. And also, how would you know? Yeah. None of your career had been business. You're designing surgical devices as well as performing surgeries. That has nothing to do ostensibly with business. It's a vacant part of the medical curriculum in in today's world. So I went back to school, got my MBA when I was 55 and worked part-time going to school, part-time at my primary job as a surgeon. And I was operating three days a week. And I felt that I was already losing just that much of an edge. No one ever said anything to me. Mm-hmm. No one ever said, you're not as good as you were. And it wasn't a failure rate, nothing like that. Nothing visible. But, but, you but I felt that the fingers, the hands just weren't moving as well. And Was that uh, due to age or just the three days a week versus five days a week? I think that's it's something you can't do part-time. You have to do it full-time. So I guessed correctly. <laughs> you, were, you did guess correctly. Having no knowledge of any of this, of course. And I went back for uh, doing clinical neurosurgery full-time again, but the business demands grew, and, and I just had to make a decision. I stopped operating. And what year was that? That was about 2009. Sounds about right. That's yeah. about when I met your eldest son, of course, Michael Papadopoulos, uh, in my class. That's how we met. How big is Barrow? 
for those who don't know? Barrow is a freestanding neurologic institute, biggest in the world. We do more neurosurgery at that institute under that roof than anywhere in the U.S. I like to say anywhere in the world. We really don't know the numbers outside the world, but certainly the biggest in the U.S., we train more residents and fellows in the neurologic disciplines and neurology, neurosurgery than any, anywhere in the, in the U.S. At, in our world, Barrow is at the, at the top of the pyramid. So how many doctors? We have about 30 neurosurgeons, about 50 neurologists, and a number of other neurologic disciplines, neuroanesthesiology, neuroendocrinology, neuroradiology. Wow. I've got about 200 faculty. Wow. Uh, and how many patients will come through Barrow in the course of a year? A little over 25,000. Wow. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good sized town, by the way. Yeah. It's not a village. Yeah. So that brings us to leadership. And when you send me some notes about this, by the way, I've got my own list of questions always, but these are really good. How do you manage innate high performers, doctors? And by the way, I've incredibly, Dr. P, I gave a Grand Rounds talk for pediatrics at University of Michigan, the least technical of all the Grand Rounds talks. I'm confident of that. Uh, Well-received. I talked about being the, the son of a pediatrician. Of course, now a student, of course, I, uh, with my son now growing up, born in that hospital and what all that feels like, but a non-technical speech. But leading doctor, we talked about this in that little talk. Doctors are famously, by the way, horrible clients for financial advisors because they have a hard time taking advice, <laughs> if you can imagine. So here on the one hand, you described it perfectly earlier. You have to have this steel-like confidence in yourself and your abilities. And that is simply a survival tool. If you don't have that, as I said earlier, my pilot, my starting goalie, my neurosurgeon better all have that. They have to have that. But that can also make it difficult in terms of management. They're used to success. They're used to being right. They're not used to failing at anything or even being suggested that they might do it another way. All this, I would guess, makes it much harder in some ways to run barrel than it is to run other things. Well, there are some easy things about leading physicians. They are innately skilled to be a physician, to get there. You have to have the tools and the ability. So you're already starting with a subset of individuals that have the skill set. That makes the leadership job. And who also know how to learn. And know how to learn. And know how to be successful. By that last point, it sounds on paper in some ways silly, but it's not. What I see with teams I've dealt with, you get to a certain point, they're good enough to win, and the act of winning itself is a separate skill. In other words, okay, you're smart, you're hardworking, you have these tools necessary, you're talented to be a good neurosurgeon, but you also have to know how to be successful. It is a separate skill, which sounds crazy, but it's not. You have to know how to be successful. You have to envision success. My job of a leader of that group is enabling that vision. What are the barriers to success? There are a few lessons. One is integrity. Integrity has to be indisputable. There are no shortcuts. You can't go around a corner to be successful in our field. The brain does not lie. Nothing lies. <laughs> the biggest barrier to success are barriers that are outside their control. We work in a business in a world that is, is challenging. 
And my job is to lower those barriers, to make the path to success attainable for people that know and want to be successful. What barriers do you have to remove? Oh, the whole institutional, mechanical barriers to practicing good medicine. We know what they all are. A lot of it are rules, regulations. Some of it's people, but when a person has a vision of success and there's a barrier in front of them that they don't have control over, that's my job to help remove that. I love it. One of my mentors told me the easiest thing to say in the world when you're leading is no. I want this. I want that. Can I do this? Can I do that? No, because the budget, we don't have it. We don't have the staffing. We don't have the time, you have the rules, blah, blah, blah. The better leaders, and this is what you're talking about here, they don't say no because, they say yes if. If you're willing to do X and Y and Z, I can get rid of A, B, and C. You have to work with me on this, but yes, if, let's find a way. And if they're not that serious about it, then they won't do those things. But if they are that serious, they will do those things, and you can make that happen. So not no because, but yes if. That's the the biggest job. Finding a way to say yes. Finding a way to say yes and achieving yes. You have to achieve yes. That's a leader's job. I love that. The other is you have to demand commitment. You can't do anything half committed or three-quarter committed or 99% committed. You have to demand commitment. goes back to your simple point. Three days a week as a brain surgeon was not enough. And no one, no one else smelled it or sensed it but you. It was not a failure rate, no comments. But you in these micro, micro I'm sure, micromillimeter issues, you knew you're not quite there. And that was your level of commitment. Yeah. Knowing that you can't do the job this way. Lower the barriers, demand commitment, let them go. How do you demand commitment? How does that look at Barrow in the real world? That's cultural ethos, just is the way it is. How would you identify somebody who is not fully committed? What would you see? And how would you correct it? Those that aren't fully committed don't succeed. (laughs) That's how you know. It just doesn't work. (laughs) It just doesn't work. My greatest mentor was uh, Robert Spetzler. He was the, the chief neurosurgeon at Barrow when I went there in 2001. And Robert had an ego beyond reproach. He was so confident of himself that he had no hesitancy to surround himself with people that were better than him. That is a great definition of confidence. The truly confident surround themselves with people who are as good or better. That's exactly what he did. None of them were better than him in total, but each one had a skill that was better than that skill that he owned. And when I got there, I had a mission that he wanted and I wanted to achieve. He gave me the resources. He took down the barrier. He says, Steve, I know you're better than this than I am. Go do it. If anything gets in the way, I will help you take it down. Don't you ever disappoint me yourself. That was it. And by the way, as far as rules go, it's in the book also, Red Auerbach of the Celtics, of course. Two rules. Don't embarrass yourself or the Celtics. End of rules. Yeah. And if you can't figure out what that is at age 25 or 30, then come talk to me. Yeah. But chances are you should figure that one out on your own. So that is a great pep talk, if you will, 
And how would you not perform your best for a guy like that? He's giving you everything you need to succeed, but then also put it on you that you are responsible for that success and you'll get the credit. There's a difference between embarrassment and disappointment. Embarrassment is outward. That's what everybody else sees. Disappointment is inward. This is a very powerful example. Your three day a week thing stays with me and probably will for a long time. That a hotshot neurosurgeon, no one else knows, no one else can tell, that find that infinitesimal little bit that you're not quite where you need to be. And that's disappointment. I'm not quite at the level I need to be. So we're going back to five days a week. That's what he was talking about. Spetzler was. It wasn't the AMA or anybody else, state board. No. That's what that looks like. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. By the way, I never knew what I was getting into on this one, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I did. This is awesome. Uh, Warren Buffett had a great line back to your earlier point that if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong damn room. Find another room. <laughs> <laughs> You've made it too easy for yourself. And it doesn't mean you're not the smartest at certain things, but where people go wrong is when they think they're going to be the smartest in all things. And that guy does not reach out for help. We've seen athletic directors like that until it's too late. Yep. If you don't reach out for help, a lot of folks are going to help you if you ask for help the right way. But you have to know whom to ask. And my joke on the team was my goal is to be the dumbest guy on the coaching staff. And I greatly exceeded my expectations. <laughs> That's okay. As long as they know who the head coach is, you knew that Spester was in charge. Yep. You had no question about that. Yeah. As long as you respect that fact, you're good. How cool is that? You get to the scary part, though. You mentioned it already. Let them go. That's the let them lead aspect of this book, of course. Letting them go to do their thing is, to me, the example is six-year-old kid, of course. I've got your kids are married now and so on. But you have to remember it, letting go of the bike seat. And you know damn well when you do that, that kid's going to wipe out. You have to let him wipe out. And you have to let him get himself up or her get herself up, wipe herself off, get back on the bike, and do it again. As a parent, that's hard. As a boss, neurosurgery, I don't even know how you do that. But you have to. You have to let them, everyone has to have their first surgery. It has to happen. How you let a doctor do his first brain surgery when you are ultimately responsible is, a, is something I cannot even fathom. What is that like? It's not as dramatic as you think. <laughs> it is a graduated process. teaching process. There have been many surgeries that I've watched residents do in their last years of training. And I need to be certain that they could do it without me before they graduate. That's scary. I've never been scared of that. You just have to be confident. So your confidence has got to be so great. It's not just for you. It's for them. Yeah. And they feel this. They have to have it also. We have to share it together. That's cool. That's really cool. One of the Examples I use in the book, if you're a basketball coach and you tell the guy, go in there, do your best. Oh, and by the way, if you miss a shot, I'm pulling you. <laughs> Guess what's going to happen next? If yeah. you communicate fear, communicate a lack of confidence, they sense that they feel it somehow or other. Yeah. So we have to have enough for both of us. It's not all brain surgery out there, people, but that would apply to almost anything. Yeah. That's really cool. What else have you learned along the way that we should know about leadership? How'd you train your successor to lead? And again, my dad went through this. He was chair of pediatrics at one point, and he started reading a ton of business books, including Tom Peters, who's become a friend and in search of excellence, but he had no courses on this. There's no development. What happens in business is this, the top sales guy becomes the top sales manager 
he may or may not be a good leader at all. And yet there he or she is, of course. Likewise, the, should the best surgeon be the guy who runs Barrow? Maybe not. It depends on how well you lead. But we teach almost none of this in most of our fields, engineering, law, medicine, and yet there you are. And you got to figure it out basically on the job, which is a scary proposition also, of course, and you do it. But what you learn, Spetzler gave you a great guide, obviously. It was not lost on you. You can't make it easy. It has to be earned. I've thought about this a lot in raising my children. You know, my, my father came over from Greece after the war. World War II. After World War II. Went through Ellis Island, Greek immigrant. A whole bit. Not a penny in his pocket. Not and, a penny in his pocket. And English. And knew a little bit of English. And he came here, got his education. The great equalizer, by the way. Mm -hmm, of course. And raised a family. And we had it a lot easier than he had it. But I learned so much from watching my father and watching his commitment and his effort and his stick to itness. And then it was time for me to raise my kids. And I was the next level of success. And my kids had it easier than I had. I've often worried at some point you make it too easy and that's a disservice to them. You have to let them and watch them work for it. And you have to let them fail. You have to let them fall off the bike. It's the only way they're going to enjoy success when they get it. Mm -hmm. Well, I know your three kids before I met you, of course. They've succeeded in law, in education, and in uh, engineering, of course. All very different fields, naturally, but all successes, hard workers. And that's how you avoid the pampered kids with the next generation. Yeah. You got to earn it. I'll give my folks here a big plug. My dad's a doctor at University of Michigan, uh, which does not make you nearly as rich as people think it does, by the way, <laughs> especially if you're a pediatric endocrinologist. But we, were, we did fine. Lord knows we didn't want for anything. Uh, no sob story here. Whatever I needed, I got. New pair of skates, you need it, fine. You need a new bike, it's, it's at that time, fine. If you want something, there's a paper route. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lawn to be mowed. And when I got my first digital clock radio, the kind the metal numbers were old enough for that, that flipped over in sixth grade. <laughs> it cost 32 bucks. I remember how it cost. I remember how it looked. I remember staring at it, waiting for the numbers to flip again. And how wonderful that thing felt to plug in. Yeah. Because I earned the damn thing. Yeah. And they did not do the disservice of giving it to me. Yeah. Which is a small little example. This is not any story of poverty, obviously, to say the least. But I give them full points for not raising spoiled brats on that basis. Uh, we all work hard. And your kids certainly work hard. So that's how you do it. So... Advice you have for future leaders in any field. You already kind of gave it, basically. Enable vision of success. Yeah. Indisputable integrity. What happens when you don't find that? What happens when, and you must have found it at some point or other, with somebody in your vast experience? What do you do? It's not my job to make them successful. That's their job. They don't have indisputable integrity. That's their job. They'll fail. Without that, you'll fail. And they'll learn that. I can't, can't fix that. That's something they have to learn. Mm -hmm. Of course, you're in a unique field where any shortcoming, any shortcut is quickly and <laughs> can be horribly tangible. So unlike some fields, you can fudge the books in some, you know, in accounting, whatever else, 
they might've catch you for a while. In your field, they catch you by lunch. Shortcuts don't work anywhere. Don't work in accounting on books. They don't work on a paper route. Shortcuts just don't work. And eventually that comes back to you. I love that. So I always give them three takeaways here at the end. In your case, it's very simple. One is enable vision of success. Two, remove barriers. Three, indisputable integrity has got to be there. And I'm going to cheat and say four, demand commitment. And as I often say, it goes from Bo Beckler. Everything here is simple and none of it's easy. And don't confuse the two. Yeah, it's simple. Yeah, it is. So do it. Yeah. <laughs> and then show me how easy it is because it's not easy. And it's, it's not easy to do all the time. And I recall in golf, a guy says, uh, oh, I'm, a, I'm not a bad golfer. I'm just not consistent. Then you're not a good golfer. <laughs> that is the difference. Tiger Woods makes the five-footer almost all the time. That's why he is the champion, of course. If you're hot one day and cold one day, you're just not that good. You have, you have potential. You might get there, but you're not there yet. And that's a big difference there. Who was your favorite teacher? I had a teacher when I was in third grade. He was a math teacher. Where were you? I was in Lafayette, California. And his name was Mr. Vogotitis. And he spoke with this thick European accent. He was an immigrant. He reminded me of my dad. And he was analytical, structured, demanding, no shortcuts. No messing around. Third grade, you're eight years old. That's right. And that's still in there. That's still there. And that's what you ended up pursuing, of course, that line of thinking. Yeah. Naturally. Yeah. Did he care about you? He cared about all of us like we were his own children. How'd you know? He didn't give us a break, ever. And that was love. That was. Tom Izzo's got a great line, the Michigan State basketball coach. I learned early on that discipline is a form of love, and my players get a lot of love. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a common attribute, of course, to George W. Bush, the soft racism of low expectations. That's true. When you lower the bar like that, and it's insulting, and it does not ultimately help, what you have to do is say, here's the bar. Let's help you get over it. What do we need to do? And I'll be here all day. And the great teachers always stay after. They know your name. They stay after. They can probably spell Papadopoulos even. Oh, yeah. Did you ever stay after school for you? Maybe you didn't need it at third grade, but uh, you would have, I'm sure of that. Several of them. Yeah. Several teachers would stay after. Several teachers I'd go and ask questions to, find them at lunch. They were always available. Kind all the great that. ones. There you go. Great conversation. I learned a lot more, frankly, than expected, not because I didn't think you were smart. I didn't think I'd be able to understand anything about brain surgery, <laughs> but you explained it extremely well. And man, that's a, a life or death proposition, as you say. My guest has been Steve Papadopoulos, the Emeritus Chief Medical Officer at Barrow Neurologic Institute in Phoenix, the biggest in the country, and I would guess probably the world. So Steve, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. You're listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon, the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. Please tell your friends, give us a review online, and subscribe, of course, and stay tuned for the next one. Again, Steve, thank you very much. You've been listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today with your host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode, got a few laughs, and picked up some insights you can use tomorrow and think about for years. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes, and by all means, spread the word. Please join us again for another fun, fast, and fulfilling serving of Let Them Lead. Let Them Lead.